Thank you, Anna. Well, uh, if you're new with us this morning, we are going through the book of Romans, and that's super exciting, is it not? And there's a lot of ways we could go. Like if you're thinking about a journey, a destination, a trek across the U.S. from where we are to California, we could uh, backpack across the U.S., right? We could take an Uber or we could fly. And uh, while we go through the book of Romans, we're going to kind of hit middle ground. We're going to take Romans in large sections. And so we're going to do 15 verses this morning as we begin. And we think about this concept of the good news of the gospel. And as we open the first half of Romans chapter 1, there's a lot going on, okay? Paul introduces himself briefly and then gives a customary greeting. He follows it by an explanation for why he wants to visit the church at Rome and ends with a quick two-verse summary of the main message of Romans. Now, I can't do anything in two sentences, but Paul, you know, he's going to take the whole book of Romans and he's going to bullet down in two verses. And throughout this section, these 17 verses, there is one word on repeat. I already explained it to you. I mentioned it to you. That word is the gospel. Romans 1.1. Romans 1.9, Romans 1.15, you look, Romans 1.16, and it is implied in verse 17 with the word it, right? You, see, you guys see that? Right, the gospel. The gospel, the word literally means what? Good news. It is a declaration of what God has done to save sinners. It's not good advice so that sinners can save themselves, Right? It's a declaration. It's what has been done. It is who God is and what he's done. So Paul opens the letter by explaining his relationship to Christ and then by explaining the gospel and then going deep so he can minister that gospel to the people who are reading this letter. The title of my sermon is The Good News of the Gospel. First point, if you're following along, the first point is the gospel message, verse 1 through 5. First, I want you to know that the gospel is a message from God. Paul literally says in 1.1, the gospel of God. That is, the gospel originated with God and not man. Man didn't make it up, right? It wasn't like they've been talking about this from way back and they originated it. No, God did. Paul did not even invent the gospel. He has no authority to edit it or add to it. He was just obligated to share it. And that's the same with us, right? That's the same with us this morning. Second, I want you to see that the message of the gospel was a promised message, okay? Paul says that this gospel in verse 2 was promised, what's the word next? Beforehand, right? The idea is the gospel is not new, it just didn't come into existence in the New Testament times. It had deep roots in the Old Testament, right? God has been announcing that he would come and rescue his people from the beginning, right? Telling them in shadows and figures in the Old Testament and direct prophecies for 39 books for over 1,500 years that he's coming to rescue and redeem a people for himself. And two examples of that, just two, there's a ton, but one of the examples that we mentioned at the beginning, uh, I mean, the end of last year was Genesis 3.15. God promised Adam and Eve that one was coming who would what? Crush the head of the serpent, even though in the process he would be wounded, right? Who's that a reference to? You tell me. Jesus, right? 
What about Isaiah 53, a very well-known prophecy? You guys heard it before, right? Someone is coming who would be pierced for your transgressions, and he would be crushed for your iniquities, and the chastisement or the punishment that you deserve would fall on him so that you could be freed, so that you could find spiritual healing. And we're talking about Jesus and the gospel. And if this section is pointing out that God is a promise maker, the next verse is pointing out that God is a promise what? Keeper, right? God just doesn't talk, right? He just doesn't say things and then not do them, okay? God speaks, and for 1,500 years, he's going to be telling us that he's going to do something, and then he's going to do it. And one of the things that we can gain from this is that we can trust God and understand that we can trust his scriptures because he's always going to do what he says. Third, in verse 3, we see the gospel is a message that is all about or concerns Jesus, right? It says that in the verse. It concerns God's, who? You tell me. Son, right? Who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel has a specific content, okay? You can't be like, hey, I was talking about God the other day, and you by accident shared the gospel. No, it's got a specific content, very specific, right? This means the gospel is a message first that tells us who Jesus truly is, right? His identity. In this verse, in verse 3, it shows us that he is fully God. He's the son of God. He's the divine son that has come down to rescue sinners, right? But he's also fully man. He is the foretold human king from David's line. But the, the gospel doesn't just tell us who Jesus is, his identity. The gospel also tells us what Jesus did to redeem us, right? You see that in verse 4. Look at it. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the mention of Jesus' resurrection implies that he died to save sinners, but this verse also is telling us that the empty tomb was God's way of declaring what was already true about who Jesus is. So you guys ever been to a gender reveal party? I'm sorry, okay? But <laughs> cutting into the colored cake is the parent's way of telling us if the child is a what? Boy or girl. The event of the resurrection is the father's way of announcing to all people who Jesus is. He's saying in the resurrection, he's my divine son. Check him out. Worship him. Be rescued by him. So if you doubted Jesus' identity as you looked at the cross and you saw him suffering and hanging there and bleeding there, if, you, if it looked like weakness, you're like, he couldn't defend himself. Oh, my goodness. He's being crucified on the cross by Roman soldiers and being spit upon. It looks like rejection from the Father. Know for sure by looking at the resurrection that the divine Son is now alive resurrected by the Spirit, having defeated the power of sin and death in the resurrection, and now is ruling in power and reigning on the throne of God himself, right? As Lord of all. That's what the resurrection showed. And the way Paul unpacks the gospel in these first verses, he's saying this, 
Our salvation, our redemption, the good news of the gospel is a plan from our triune God. He's working it out and say the father planned it. He's the source of it. The son, the divine son executed it on the cross and through the resurrection. And the spirit, the God's spirit actually empowered the resurrection to happen, right? The gospel was a Trinitarian rescue plan, right? Fourth, we're still in the first point. The gospel is a message of grace. Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. And I want to labor on this because some of us never came to Jesus or the good news. We came to religion. That's what we did. Okay? And religion can't save you. Your doing and your efforts cannot save you. Right? And This message says Paul received grace. The message of the gospel is a message of grace. What is grace? Okay? It's undeserved love to us from God in Jesus. God is so holy and so worthy and so infinite. Do we deserve to be loved by him? No. But that's the beauty of the gospel. There's a story about C.S. Lewis. You guys heard of C.S. Lewis? Christian author. While he was a professor of literature at Oxford, he was walking down the hall and a bunch of his fellow professors were in class debating religion. And they were trying to come up with all these things religions have in common. So they were writing them out on the chalkboard. You guys remember when boards were made of chalk? Yeah. And they were doing that. And while they were doing that, C.S. Lewis was walking down the hallway and they said, hey, Jack, that was his nickname. Hey, Jack, come in here. And they show us. We know you're the Christian, the only Christian in here, right? So you come and show us on the board, what would make Christianity any different from all these other religions? Come on, Jack, prove it to us. And Lewis casually walks up to the board and he writes one word across the bottom. You know what that word was? Grace. 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 One pastor said, every religion in the world operates off this premise. I obey, therefore I am accepted. And we'd like to bring that into a lot of our Christian, Christianity here in Christian circles. But that's a false gospel. The author goes on to say, but Christianity says the exact opposite. The good news of Christianity is that I am accepted, therefore I obey. I am accepted only because of what Jesus has done. And now I can freely and joyfully obey God because I love him. And I'm thankful. Amen. The gospel is a declaration of who God is and what he has done to save undeserving sinners because his great love for us. This is the gospel that we proclaim. Second point, the gospel transforms people. Amen. Amen. Paul talks about the gospel having transformed his identity, verse 5. First, it transformed him from someone who, was merely, who had merely saw Jesus as a mere man or a good person or a religious leader or, in Paul's context, a major problem. Like, that's how he viewed Jesus, right? It transformed him from that person to someone who now has Jesus control every facet of his life willingly, <laughs> right? He says in verse 5, Jesus Christ, our what? Lord, he says in verse one, I am a bond slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. In verse nine of Romans chapter one, he says, I serve God with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul is saying when the gospel came to me and I believed it, 
I realized that Jesus is Lord of all, and I laid down and submitted my life to him. That's what he's saying. Jesus has set me free, and he calls the shots. And upon hearing the gospel, this is what we do. We repent from all the false understandings, all these fake gospels, and we choose to surrender a self-ruled life and trust to God. This gospel changes our identity into those who are now surrendering to the Lord. Second, the gospel transformed Paul into someone who hadn't received God's saving grace to someone who had, and this is huge. He was a recipient of that. He was now marked out by one as one who loved God, just like the rest of the church at Rome. He said, I have received God's grace. And this is what I want to know. Have you done that? Can you say that over your life? Can you say, you know what? God loved me. He gave himself for me. And I believe that personally, and it's changing me. Third, the gospel transformed Paul into a sent one. Look at verse five. Paul says, I have received grace and what? You guys see it? Receive grace and apostleship. That's a great ship to be on, okay? Apostleship. Sometimes the Bible talks about capital A apostles, right? Who are they? Those who saw the resurrected Lord and those whose writings were the inspired scripture, capital A apostleship. But there's also a little a lowercase apostle that the Bible talks about. And that refers to those who've been sent by God with the gospel. You know who that includes? Every, everybody, all Christians, right? That includes everyone who is a Christian. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in this verse that we're mentioning. I think the point is, as one uh, pastor said, that Jesus is a spiritual tornado, okay? And I'm meaning no disrespect to Jesus is actually an amazing concept. Jesus doesn't just suck us up into his saving love without sending us out to others with that same transforming message. He is a spiritual tornado. Paul is a slave to Christ. He's saturated by the love of Christ, and he's sent out to share the gospel of Christ. And here's my question. What about you? What about you? If you've believed on Christ, all that Paul says about his identity is true for you also. I don't care if you're a little kid or you're a, a, an elderly person or you're somewhere in between. This is true for you. And if you are a Christian, Paul's encouragement is let's live out of the identity that God's gave, given you in Christ. Let's live out of that identity, right? He's saying his identity has changed, and so now he is a goer with the gospel. And he's saying that gospel has changed his purpose for living. Romans 1.1, he says, my identity is that I've been set apart for the gospel. It is my life. It is my mission. It is my purpose. And it's ours as well, church. It is ours. Paul's gospel goal is, look at this phrase right here in the beginning, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul likes to slam a lot of concepts into one verse. And let's break down that sentence really quick. Bring about the obedience of faith. Paul is not saying salvation is obedience plus faith. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone through faith. And Paul is also not saying that he merely wants people to change their actions and be better people like a form of behavior modification. He's like, if I can really get what I want when the gospel goes out, I just want mindless robots. 
You know, I want people who just do better and act better and dress better and, and do right and stop doing bad. No, that's not what he wants. Paul says he wants the obedience of faith. This is what he means. He means, I want people to respond to the gospel with saving faith because I know that genuine saving faith will always result in a life laid down in obedience to Jesus Christ. Saving faith will change the heart and the heart will overflow in obedience to Christ where it is real. It's like what Martin Luther said, right? The Protestant reformer, it's like what Ephesians shows us. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never what? It's never alone. It always transforms, right? Paul wants a faith in a gospel that is real, and he's saying, you will know when it's real. This is what he says. He's like, if you want to know if the gospel has done its work in a heart and in your life, you know what the gospel will do as soon as it's received and the amazing undeserved love of God is received in Christ and you're set free from your sins and you're made new and the spirit of God comes to live within you. The very thing you'll start doing is you'll start asking, what does God want for my life? What does Jesus want me to do? And then in his power and his love and his strength, you'll do it. <laughs> it's crazy. You'll like read the Bible, see what Jesus tells you to do. And because you love the Lord and he set you free, you're going to start wanting to do it in his power. That's what he wants. He wants the obedience of faith. I hope that's what we want. We don't want little kids just to come to church and know Bible verses and not to get their noses dirty and speak kindly to people. We want little kids whose trust in Christ just overflows from the heart. They love Jesus and they, they love what he's done to save them. And they want to tell everybody about it. And they want to do whatever Jesus says. Isn't that what we want? That's what we want for ourselves. Amen. Come on, let's get some coffee and let's go, guys. Turn the AC out. Let's do this, okay? All right. Oh, okay. Sorry. Down or whatever. Okay. Then he says, among all the nations. That's his goal, right? Paul wants the gospel to go to and transform all people. Look around the room. We all look the same in here almost. He wants every color, every tribe, every race, every language, every culture to hear and experience the glories and the saving goodness of Jesus' gospel, right? The gospel is for the Greek and the barbarians, Romans 1.14. And in, in the order and salvation history, Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, Paul wants the gospel to go to everyone because he knows that only the gospel has the power to overcome ethnic and cultural differences and to create true unity. Only the gospel can do that. Let me tell you why. Think about this. Let's go deep and think. The gospel does something that unites people who are very different. It comes to you and says this great thing. You're equally sinners. Regardless of what color you are, what background you have, if you went to church when you were younger or you're moral, you're equally sinners. You equally need God's saving. Jesus Christ equally died for you. Isn't this good news? And now those who believe are equally forgiven, equally beloved children, equally on the same mission of making much of Jesus together through the gospel forever until Jesus takes us home. Amen. The gospel uproots all prejudice. You see what I'm saying? It's the only answer for race relation problems or any other kind of prejudice problem. The gospel has the power to unify different people. 
So if you have a problem with prejudice or you have a problem looking down your nose in superiority, you, got the, you need the same answer. You don't know enough and you've not gone deep enough with the gospel. Does that make sense? Yes. And Paul wants this gospel to go out and save and transform people. Here it goes, for the sake of his name, right? Whose name is that? Jesus is, right? Now, that's interesting. Surely Paul wants, and he is motivated to take the gospel because he doesn't want people to die and go to hell. Is that a good thing? Does Paul talk about that later on in the Bible? Yes, of course. Surely Paul wants others to experience forgiveness, right? Surely Paul wants other people to experience new life in Jesus. He talks about that in other places in the Bible. But here, his primary focus, his primary reason for sharing the gospel is because he wants Jesus' name to be exalted, right? John Piper said this, missions exist because worship doesn't. He's like, there's places in your community, there's places in other parts of the world that people don't worship and love Jesus and say, you're glorious, you're great, the Lord reigns. There's places that don't say that. There's hearts that don't yet say that. And Paul is saying, that's what I want. That's what I'm about. I just don't want people forgiven. I do have compassion for their situation. I do want their needs met. But he's saying, I want Jesus to be exalted. And that will make a, a huge difference in the reason why we share or don't share the gospel, right? We want Jesus' name exalted. We want him to get the glory and fame for what he's done to rescue sinners from every tribe and tongue. We want to say Psalm 96 together, Lord, get the glory to your name through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that drive us this morning? When you see people in your cubicle, and they're living about and for money. And they're like, we got to get that money. It's my safety. It's my safety net. It's what I'm all about. It defines me. Is there something in your heart that wells up and says, you were made to worship Jesus? Not that. When we went overseas into East Asia and walked into Hindu temples, and our, our team saw people bowing down before Krishna, and other false gods, idols, like blue lady idols, just fall out on the ground, worshiping prostrate. There was something in me that said, you're not made for that. It's not just, your life's so broken, that's so sad, you need help. No, it was like, you're not made for that. You're made to worship Jesus alone, right? Jesus alone, for the sake of his name. Going to share the gospel was Paul's purpose. That's the transformation that happened in his life. But he wasn't just excited about taking the gospel to lost people so they could become saved. Look at verse 15. He was eager to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. Like he was eager to preach the gospel to Christians. You're like, what? They already got the gospel. Why did they need the gospel? Great question, guys. Romans 16.25, the end of the book, Paul explains this when he says, Now to him, that's God, who is able to strengthen you according to my, you know what he says? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel that saves the lost is the same gospel that spiritually strengthens the saints. Think about that for a minute. 
You never graduate or move on from the gospel. You still need it. It's your primary means of growth in the Christian life. Going deeper and wider in the same old, old story is our pursuit, right? So you come up here and you say, that pastor's preaching the gospel again? He told us it last Sunday. What does he think? We're lost. You should thank the man, right? Because that's how God strengthens his people. They're hearing that news and that story again that you don't deserve God's love and he loves you and he wants to use you and he saved you, right? So good. All right. The gospel transforms our identity, our purpose, and it transforms our desires or motivations. Look at that in verse 8 through 15, a big chunk. So I'm just kind of going to overview it. Paul uses a lot of interesting language in verses 1 through 15. Things that Westerners or Americans probably are really turned off by. Like words like slave. I'm nobody's slave. I'm American. You know what I'm saying? or servant, or words like obligation. That's what Paul uses to talk about this gospel call. But this is what Paul wants us to know. When it comes in, the gospel changes everything, especially your heart, so that you desire what he desires, and you love what he loves, and he changes things that were once only duty or obligation into great delight. You guys got that with me? Verse 8, pre-salvation, Paul would have never been excited about the gospel being unleashed in Rome. He would not have been excited about people being saved or people living lives of obedience to Christ. But where there would have been anger or apathy or indifference, Paul is now thanking God for the gospel witness resounding from Rome. He's like pumped. He's like, I've heard of your faith all the way from over there in Rome to hear, and I am jazzed out of my mind about what Jesus is doing in your life. That good saving work, it's spilling out. Does that make it into your prayers? That's my question. Gratitude for what God is doing down the street through the gospel at another church. You're just like, God, I'm so excited to hear about the work that you're doing, and people are believing your gospel, and it's transforming them. Does gratitude make it into your prayers for the work that God is doing in East Asia with our missionary partners? Just like, God, thank you for the stories. And when they come in and they tell us, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in, in and through them. But it isn't just that. Verse 10, Paul is praying without ceasing because he wants to visit the church in Rome. Look, it changes his longing. You guys hear that word right there? He says, for verse 11, for I long to see you. Paul isn't just excited about traveling to a different part of the world or checking off a trip on his bucket list. He wants to be used of God to spiritually strengthen the believers there. He says it like this, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul understands this fact, this truth. And you guys tell me if I'm making sense. Paul understands that faith can be like a log fire on your camping trip. Anybody ever been tent camping outside? Okay, I'm not talking about in your camper, okay? I'm talking about in a tent. And you make that log fire outside. And then you fall asleep. And it's like 17 degrees outside like it is right now. And you're like, that fire starts to wane. And it gets down low. And it's like turning into uh, you know, little burning embers. And everybody's like, oh, it's freezing cold. Somebody get up, wake up, and get over there and stoke that fire. Paul's like, your faith can be like that. Can it? Can it? 
hard week, difficulty, challenges in your life, and your faith seems like it's getting smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And this is what Paul says, I want your faith, church at Rome, to be stoked, and I want to be the one doing it by God's grace. Paul wants to use his gifts for preaching and pastoring to stir up their faith in Jesus and the gospel. He wants to use his gifting so that more and more people will say, I love Jesus, and I love what the gospel is, and I'm putting my trust in it, and I can move forward because of that. He longs for that. What if we went to church every Sunday with that type of longing? Or had coffee with a Christian friend with that type of longing? It wouldn't be like, hey, we just go shoot the breeze, have a little latte, and it'll be fine. No, it was like, I want them to trust Jesus and what he's done for them more than they did yesterday. And I want God to use my gifts. You're like, I don't have any gifts. Sometimes I feel like that. But guess what? God gave you gifts. He gave you strengths. He gave you abilities, and he actually gave them to you so that you could be stirring up the body of Christ to love him and love the gospel more. That's what God gave it to you for, right? What if we went to pod, our, our men's and women's discipleship groups, with that frame of mind? Lord, just use me today with the gifts you've given me to stir up the faith of my brothers and sisters so they would trust Christ more and live for him more than they ever did before, right? Paul wasn't there just to give, though. He was actually there to receive as well. The apostle Paul was there to receive and he actually felt like it was spiritual. He wanted to take something from them when he went to Rome to visit. And you know what he wanted? He wanted encouragement in the gospel as well. Isn't that encouraging? The apostle Paul, you like ever read the list in Corinthians or whatever of all the stuff he's been through, like shipwrecked, stoned three times, almost died, his, you know, all that stuff. Bitten by a snake, almost died, whatever. And Paul's saying in this text, I need spiritual encouragement too. I need other people to stoke my fire. And I'm, I'm no way in shape or form anywhere close to Apostle Paul, but I'm telling you, I need that. So when you come this morning or you pick up the phone and call or you text, I need that as well, and you do as well. And what Paul is highlighting is there is a humility it takes to both serve God's people and stir them up with the gospel, and there's a humility there needed to say, you know what, I'm struggling. By the way, I'm not perfect. Yeah. I, there's a humility that it takes to say, I need you to speak into my life. I need you to stir me up with the gospel because my campfire, log fire is waning. So would you do that? And I'm asking, will you have that humility today and this week and next week to not only give the gospel, but also receive it from other people, right? Verse 13, Paul is now heading to Rome to stir up the faith of believers and he wants to reap a spiritual harvest that is to see people saved by the gospel. That's a spiritual harvest. But also to see the church stirred up by the gospel for service and gospel evangelism. And here again is one of those crazy word pairings in verse 14. Paul is obligated to do it. You see the word obligation? Oh, that seems so negative. But he pairs it in verse 15 with this word eager. I'm obligated with the gospel, and I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verse 15. 
you're like, how does that go together? Well, only in Christianity. That's what I got to tell you. I'll give you an example. It, it can go together. What if I told you I'm Anna's husband, I am, and I'm obligated to kiss her. You know what I'd say? Anytime, any place. I'm up for that obligation, right? Paul is saying, hey, this is what Paul is saying, I'm obligated. He he could say it another way. He could say, I'm indebted to take the gospel to all people, regardless of race or intellect. That's what that verse is talking about, barbarian, wisdom or not wisdom. But it's not like this. It's not that the gospel is a $100 bill and that I owe the gospel to them like somehow they deserve it. That's not what he's saying. That'd be the opposite of what he's unpacking in those verses. That's not what he's saying. It's more like this. He's saying, God gave me an unending amount of million-dollar bills. Did you guys know there were million-dollar bills? I just made that up, right? (laughs) It's all his money. And it's sitting in my checking account or in my car. And he's told me I get the blessing of handing out those million-dollar bills and to see God change people's lives with his money and his resources and his good news. None of the people that we're handing those dollar bills out to deserve it. And the giver, the one who's taking the message, the one who's speaking the gospel, me, I didn't deserve it either, but I get to. Now that's a different type of obligation, isn't it? That's an eagerness. I get to be a part of this mission. I get to be an instrument. I get to share the love of Christ and see people saved or encouraged. It's like the person who finds out they have a cure for cancer their cancer, they've got cancer. And then they are obligated to take that remedy to everyone else who has cancer. It's not truly an obligation. It is now a delight. And Paul is, Pablo is obligated to yet eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And we often know the last verses of Romans 1, 16 and 17, but we gotta make sure that we understand the verse that precedes it which is I am eager to take the gospel to Rome. Final point, if we can get through it, the gospel removes and reveals. So we come to Romans 1, 16 through 17, and think of it like one pastor said, as the tweetable version of Romans, right? Romans in a nutshell. In these two quick verses, verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us his main thesis and mentions several of the themes he will unpack throughout Romans. When Paul says, I am not ashamed, it's letting us know that shame can often be a barrier to sharing the gospel eagerly with others. You guys listening to me? Let's get real, 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 okay? Shame can also often become a barrier from sharing the gospel with others. Any of you guys, like myself, have a hard time sharing the gospel sometimes? Do you? I mean, really? I mean, just think, it's not for condemnation because I'm very guilty of not doing it This week, it's been a while, to be honest, that I shared the gospel. Why haven't I, right? Part of it is I didn't see it like that million-dollar bill that I get to hand out, right? We might treat the gospel in that moment like we treated my dad's station wagon growing up, okay? In early high school, I'm sorry you have to hear this, dad. 
Me and my siblings would get dropped off in the car circle before school, at public school. And to me, in my great immaturity, Dad, I'm going to say that, my great immaturity, I was embarrassed of riding in the station wagon, even though it had those backwards flip seats in the very, very back. So when people drove, you could, okay, never mind. Okay. Why? I didn't think it was cool. I didn't think the paint job was cool. I didn't think wagoning it out, you know, in high school, it was cool. And I was just waiting for other people to make fun of me. Many of us think of the gospel like that station wagon. We really do. We do. We know the gospel is offensive to others. It points out that we are all born sinners. That's pretty offensive, isn't it? It points out that we all deserve judgment from a holy God. If he gave us what we deserve, we'd get hell forever. It points out that sinners are so bad that they can't save themselves. What do you mean I can't save myself? I'm an American. Of course I can save myself. As one author uh, points out, the gospel is offensive because it tells very, very, very proud people, either morally proud or religiously proud, that being good enough is not enough. It tells us we are so wicked that the perfect son of God had to die to save us. Salvation is a free gift, but you know what that means? It means you can't bring anything to the table. And you say, what do you mean I can't bring anything to the table? I don't like that message. And it's only through Jesus that we can find salvation. What does that mean? There are no other paths. It's not like all religions lead to the same place. You just walk up your side of the mountain. No, it says Jesus exclusively saves. The Son of God, raised in power, exclusively saved. He exclusively is Lord of all. It's only through Jesus and his gospel that you can come. And the gospel tells us, this pastor says, that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving and therefore means that to follow Jesus, we will follow Jesus into suffering and service. And you say, that's offensive. That's kind of a rough edge around the gospel. I don't kind of like that, right? And the gospel starts feeling a little bit like a station wagon. And you're like, maybe it's too simple. Like, it's all about grace. I don't know if I want to share that. You know, maybe somebody's going to throw something at me. Or maybe I'm not going to be so popular among my friends. But Paul wants us to know something about the gospel. Gospel. The gospel. It actually destroys the shame that often silences us. The gospel has the power to destroy the shame that often silences us or keeps us from speaking the gospel. What do I mean by that? The gospel is not a station wagon. If you think the gospel is weakness or you're embarrassed, it's because you actually don't understand it, what it is and what it can do. The gospel is actually not a station wagon. It's more like a souped up muscle car. It's a Camaro. It's a Mustang GT. It's a new Dodge Charger. Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's power. As one author says, Paul doesn't say the gospel brings power or has power. He says it actually is power. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal cognitive form. So whatever good news you were peddling before you came in here this morning, abandon it because it's not ultimately good news. Like maybe you were peddling the particular candidate for the Republican Party good news. It's not the gospel, right? Or maybe your good news is eat organic. I mean, how can that be good news for a second? But anyhow, but I'm saying, like, maybe that was your good news. And you want to tell everybody because you think it can save? 
Like, just get that word out because it can save you. No, not ultimately. Only the gospel is power, right? The gospel alone saves. The gospel alone takes condemned rebels and make them, makes them justified before Almighty God. It takes spiritually dead people and raises them to spiritual life. It takes slaves and makes them sons. It takes those who are in the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of Jesus and his beloved son. It takes losers and makes them loved. I mean, this gospel is amazing. It is power. And when you see that and you're like, man, that's glorious, you don't look at it and say, oh, I'm so ashamed of it. I don't want to share it with anybody. You say, I boast in the gospel. It's the best thing in the world. I want to tell everybody, right? The gospel is power, not weakness. So share it. It saves, sanctifies, strengthens, and it makes sure that that gospel alone gets all of God's people home to heaven. Final part of this, the gospel doesn't just remove shame. It also reveals righteousness doesn't just remove shame, it also reveals righteousness. Paul says, for in it, in it, what is it? What is it? The gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Paul says the righteousness of God, what does he mean? Well, I just want you to know, that's been heavily debated by a lot of people who are way smarter than me. But what I can say is this, if you study the surrounding context of Romans, God's righteousness could mean at least three things. And I mentioned several of those last week. As you stare at the good news and you're like looking at the glory of Jesus dying for sinners and raising again to save us, God's righteousness is revealed in that when you look at the gospel, you see the remedy for God's righteous justice, right? He condemns his son so he can forgive us, right? Jesus dies for us so that we can be loved by Almighty God. Jesus dies in our place and his holiness is satisfied, justice is satisfied. Also, as you stare at the good news of the gospel, you will see God is righteously faithful to save his people just like he promised from the beginning. You're like, he's been talking? He's been talking. Is he gonna do anything to show his righteous faithfulness? Yeah, he is. He is going to die himself and raise again to show that he's faithful to all of his promises. It could mean that. Or it could mean, as you stare at the good news of the gospel, you see God's righteous record freely being gifted to all those who would just believe. Can you believe that? You are no longer David, the condemned one. David, the loser. David, who can't measure up. You are David, who has been justified by Almighty God, David, who stands in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not on his own merit, right? I think all these could be true, but I lean more heavily in the last one. And Paul says, this gospel, verse 17, is revealed from faith for faith. Or another translation says, beginning and ending in faith. This is the idea, I think. You only get to experience the righteous status giving and and new life imparting gospel by trusting Jesus Christ. And those who enter into that salvation by faith later down the road don't have to somehow maintain that salvation by their good deeds. Isn't that good news? Right? You're not like, I got saved by faith, but like later down the road, I got to earn it. I got to do enough. I got to make, I mean, my quiet times, are they enough? Like, did I do enough good things and deeds? Today, no, it starts in faith and it's faith from start to finish. 
Like when we cross the line of, of, of death into death and our stammering lips and our lives were so feeble, we can't do anything for anybody. We can barely breathe in our bed on the oxygen machine. We'll know it's faith from start to finish, right? It's always been Jesus who could save us. It's always been us standing in his righteous record. It's never been us in our doing, ever, from start to finish. I think that's what Paul's getting at by that phrase. Paul then quotes, finally in this section, verse 17, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as some might say. And he says, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or another translation, I believe this is the Star Wars Yoda translation. It says, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. That's actually how it's worded. The idea seems to be that those who believe on the gospel and are declared righteous before God at salvation will also, by result or effect, be the ones who live a lifelong pursuit and trust of Jesus and his gospel every day in the nitty-gritty details. That person who is declared, the judge brings down the hammer, God does, and he says, you, when you believed on the gospel, you're not guilty of your sins anymore. Jesus has cleansed you. You stand in his righteousness, and you're like, is that it? Well, is that it? That's amazing, but like, that's not where it ends. That person believed on Jesus, and that same faith that he trusted or she trusted and was justified before Almighty God is going to be a faith that continues them in their journey. It's going to encompass their life. They're going to be people of trust, people who trust God's word, his promises, trust his gospel. That's what they're going to be. And you say, well, how is that? Well, you know what? Because faith in Jesus links you to the life of Jesus. That's how that works. You're like, I'm going to have enough faith to trust God all the way through that and down to the end. And like, life's hard. Yeah. And if I didn't believe Rome, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we'd be in big trouble because the Bible says Jesus is the author and the what? The perfecter of our faith. So you say, what does this faith look like as we close? Hypothetically, okay? It's not just trusting in all the promises of God in general, right? Although that's true. It looks like your faith trusting the gospel in your everyday. It's going to shape the way you look at yourself, the way you deal with certain circumstances, and the way you relate to others. And I'm just going to give us a couple as we conclude. Hypothetical situation. And I know that I've been in all of these, like mentally or physically, I've, I've wrestled with them. Say you're depressed because you just dropped the ball at work or you bombed things at work. You're defeated and down on yourself. Or maybe it was not at work, maybe it was in your marriage, or maybe it was in a relationship. How are you going to live by faith in the gospel in that moment? It will look like this, and I had to preach this to myself every day, and I had to last week, and this is hard, but this is what it looks like to live by faith in that moment. You raise your head high because you know you are loved and accepted, not on the basis of what you've done, but on Christ's work alone. You admit your fail failure willingly. You don't try to cover it and you don't try to hide it from others. And you stand up in faith in the gospel and you move forward. You say, this is not going to define me. This is not going to bury me. I believe the good news of the gospel and I am redeemed. I am loved because of the work of another, Jesus Christ. That's what that looks like. What if you're feeling a little better than others? Maybe that's your issue. 
Maybe you always feel like you're more superior than other people, like you're always feeling bad because other people don't have their lives together. <laughs> Especially over social media, you're like, Those, they really need some help. Me, not so much, right? <laughs> what does it look like to live my faith in the gospel in that proud moment? You humbly admit to God that your efforts don't justify you before him anyhow. Only Jesus does. And any good you do in life is because of Jesus' life flowing through you. And then as a result, you stand up from that computer or that phone tablet looking at social media, and you walk away and you say, God, I am so thankful for your mercy. I'm so thankful for your gift of grace in my life. And you talk to that person that you would normally just like kind of hold things over them in conversation or look down your nose at them and you don't speak in that self-righteous tone anymore because you actually trust the gospel, right? Finally, what about if somebody has done something to hurt you and you just can't seem to forgive them or reconcile? I mean, if you be honest, you don't even wanna be around them. What does it look like to live by faith in the gospel in that moment? Here's the thing, and I know this is hard. You forgive them, you treat them as their sins don't deserve like Jesus treated you. You move in with prayers, you bless your enemies, and you do your part as much as you can to reconcile. Why? Because God extended you his salvation, his forgiveness, his righteous record in Jesus, even when you didn't deserve it. That's what it looks like to live out the gospel in faith. As we conclude, I want you to think on those three main points, the gospel message or content, the gospel that transforms and the gospel that removes and reveals. And I want us to do this. I want us to understand and go deeper and wider in the gospel. And then I want us to share it like nobody's business. We'll, we'll leave the results up to, to God, but I want to share it like nobody's business because we can move forward, not in shame, but because we know that the gospel is power to save anybody who would believe it. Let's pray.